This episode is brought to you by IG, the finance company. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. Mac. John. We've been talking recently about the Great Depression and new economic movements yep. in the world and the, the kind of a new American economy and new approach. This week, let's take a big, broad view of all these changes. Okay. How are they going to impact the markets, et cetera, et cetera. But let's first of all start with the past, then we look at the present, and then heading into the future. So we've spoken about, as I say, the Great Depression a couple of times, but let's go back into that okay, and, and cool. just explain kind of what, exactly, what it was and what yeah, it happened. Yeah, where and, it came from and, and how it was handled. Okay. Right. All right. Well, the Great Depression, so just so people get a sense of what we're talking about, the years. Yeah. We're talking 1929 to 1936, the peak year probably of the Great Depression, 1933. A pivotal year, 1929, obviously, because that's when the financial market crashed, which precipitated all this. 1931, very critical year because that's the year that Hitler begins to see significant breakthroughs in Germany. Mm. And then by 1936, it's more or less over, following three years of the Roosevelt government, Roosevelt doing a Joe Biden, tearing up the rule book and saying, hold on a second, right? we're going to change the way. So that's the period. Let's say 1929 to 1939. Really? Okay. Because many argue that the Second World War was a function of the Great Depression. Had it not been for the Great Depression, there wouldn't have been such high levels of unemployment. Those high levels of unemployment would not have precipitated the rise of Hitler, yada, yada, yada. So that's one side. Yeah, yeah. But in order to look at the Great Depression in its totality, you have to start at the Versailles Treaty in 1918, 1919, the end of the First World War. The Germans feel and felt that they were stabbed in the back. This was the narrative of the Nazis. They were stabbed in the back by generals who capitulated when Germany didn't have to capitulate. Right. So the narrative in Germany was the plucky, brave German soldier, the infantry, the Prussian and Bavarian sort of infantry man was stabbed in the back by a coalition of upper class people, leftists, Jewish financiers, and cowardly admirals and generals, right? Right. Now, okay. just that's important to keep in the back of your head, right? Mm. So the Germans go into the train at Versailles, where they actually were humiliated by the Westerners. And the Treaty of Versailles comes with all sorts of geographical, political ramifications, but also economic. And the main one was that Germany will pay for a significant amount of time reparations to France and Britain and America. Now, the Americans under Woodrow Wilson were being counted on to make reparations more manageable, but they didn't. The French were obsessed by punishing Germany, obsessed, and the Brits too. So the recovery in the 1920s is jaundiced by reparations. This is an important point to think about. So what do reparations do? Reparations mean that X amount of your GDP are taken out of your country and given to somebody else, right? So in order to make your books balance, now this is again important in the context of the gold standard. So what happened was 
the world goes back to the gold standard. So every currency in the, in the 20s is fixed to gold. But in order to maintain that gold standard, you need gold. You actually need physical stuff to say, sure, we yeah. have the gold in order to back this. So if you turn up in Germany and say, I would like, you know, the gold equivalent of my, of my new Reichmark, you've got to give it. So in the beginning, the Germans said, we will do reparations, but we can't do the gold standard because it's going to be too restrictive. Mm. The French say, we're going back to the gold standard. The Brits say, we're going back to the gold standard. The gold standard is important because when the Great Depression happens, the gold standard is a problem, not right. a solution. Yes, yeah, yeah. So the Americans are thinking, okay, what we've got to do in Europe is we've got to maintain a situation where the dollar maintains its parity against these European currencies. The only way we can do that is if we maintain a situation where the Europeans can borrow from us at a reasonably low level of interest. Yeah. Okay? So the Americans spend the 1920s looking over their shoulders at the Europeans, keeping American interest rates lower than they should otherwise have been. Now, this is important because when you keep interest rates lower for longer, what you tend to do is you get asset price bubbles. You get bubbles in all sorts of financial right. assets, right? Kind of what we're seeing now. Yeah. And this is leading towards the 1929 crash. So yeah. the 1929 crash is a function of excessively loose American monetary policy, which is a function of keeping global interest rates low, which is a function of allowing the Europeans to borrow. Why did the Germans have to borrow? Because amazingly, if you are giving reparations, right, mm. money is flowing out of your country. In order to maintain your exchange rate, other money has to come into your country. Yeah, of course, yeah. And of course, you have to borrow to do that. So they borrowed to cover the reparations, which is kind of mad, right? Yeah. And as the Americans kept saying to the French and Brits, calm down on this, reparations. Yeah. But the French were absolutely adamant that Germany would pay everything. This is, remember we were talking about our Carthaginian peace the other day, John? Yes, indeed, yeah. yeah. That's when they just trash so, the place So the, Car the Carthaginian peace is when the Punic Wars, John. Yes. Okay, we're going back 200 BC. Right. Hannibal, okay? Oh, yes. Hannibal yeah, was a Carthaginian. Yeah. Carthage was a Phoenician trading town, which was the only proper commercial competitor to Rome and Rome's desire to own the Mediterranean because yeah. the Romans knew if they, cut, if they took the Mediterranean, they'd take e Egypt and Egypt was the prize. Right. Okay? okay. So they had to get rid of these Carthaginians and there was three Punic Wars, uh, first, second and third between the Romans and the Carthaginians. Yeah. Very, very brutal. Which is Tunisia. Basically. Which is, yeah, Northern Tunisia. Yeah, Northern yeah. Tunisia. Uh, uh, very brutal. Actually existential for the Romans because had they lost these wars, they would have been wiped out themselves. And the final Punic War the Roman general, a guy called Scipio, right? Yeah. Extracted what they Is called- Is that his nickname? Because it sounds like it. All right, Scipio. <laughs> yeah. I know, two Scipios. Uh, but he said, we are going to inflict on these people a peace which will be so traumatic that they will never rise again. So a Carthaginian peace is when you destroy the country, your enemy after the peace. Right. And so much so that the Romans embalmed Carthage, or the area that Carthage was on, in salt, so nothing could ever grow there again. Jesus. They were like vindictive people. Yeah. Now, interestingly, little side thing, there was a movement in Britain after the Second World War to deploy exactly the same in Germany. 
So the really? Americans were arguing. It's really interesting. The Americans were arguing for the for the Marshall Plan. There's a significant movement in Britain which argued for what they call the pastoralization of Germany. So they were going to de-industrialize Germany completely and turn it into pasture. They were going to turn Germany into a big farm. And this was a significant part of British thinking. Well, they had already blanket-bombed. They'd blanket-bombed, and then they were going to say, look, if we let these people, Germans, re-industrialize, re-militarize, they'll be at this carry-on again. So there was a big... Big movement in England wow, to, yeah. it's called to pastoralize, to turn it all into a big meadow. Luckily, the Americans prevailed. Let's go back to the depression. The depression. So Americans are keeping the interest rates low. There's also something extraordinary happening, which you always need in great booms, is the effervescence of optimism. Mm. And what was happening in the United States at the time was electricity was becoming a thing in people's houses. Now right. imagine how phenomenal that change was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like light, right? Light and heat, the Model T Ford, completely changed the American landscape. You have cars, cars being made available to the average person. You remember Ford's idea was, I'm going to make a car cheap enough that my own workers can buy. Yeah. Right? So you have suburbanization, you have the automobile, you have the extraordinary technology called the radio. Mm. Radio changes people's ears. You can hear voices from thousands of miles away, live. I mean, just think about how crazy this was. Yeah. You have washing machines, you have dishwashers, even fridges. fridges. This is all happening in the 20s. Yeah. The American economy turns into a consumer economy. And what you also get is debt for the first time, personal debt, credit cards, but particularly overdrafts and loans and margin loans. Right. So suddenly the United States is going through this phenomenal change, captured by the great Gatsby and all the, the culture of the time was you know, the can-can, all, you know, mm. the feminization of everything, these effervescence, you get consumer goods, you get debt, you get optimism about the future, you get this brave new world. If you think of all the, you know, cinema that was being done at the time. This yes, is, it's, yeah. you know, you know. Chaplin and- All and this stuff, yeah. right? Right. So you've got this bubbling culture. And interestingly, you have all sorts of bizarre theories of how the American worker has become this productivity beast based on- prohibition. So there was a huge part of economics that loved prohibition because they they thought that the moral sober worker yeah. was a better productive creature on the factory floor. So yeah. you got all this mad stuff going on at the same time. And it's what you do right, actually. probably is right. Yeah. Yeah. But what you do have then, obviously then, is stock market speculation. This is when the stock market goes public, when the average Joe begins to invest. It's a get-rich-quick scheme. Everyone's involved. Mm. So you get an, huge levels of inequality, not unlike now, right? Cruising along, 1927, 1928, 1929, stock market crashes. And crashes and crashes and crashes. And this is when the Great what Depression- What was the spark went. of that? You know, the funniest thing is there's no real moment- where people can go. It's a bit like, it's like, it's like we've talked about GameStop, we've talked about the tulips. They just happen. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a great expression, which is the solution to high prices is high prices. Right. Meaning that the price just goes sufficiently high and then it solves itself. So right. the actual okay. solution is, it just gets too expensive. Now, what happens if you have been buying your shares on margin, on debt, yeah. is the next thing. So we get the crash, right? Number one. Because there was so much debt in the market, that as the share prices fall, most people were buying on margin, which is the following, right? Which is you go to a broker and you say to the broker, I'd like to buy on margin. And the broker says, okay, how much is the share? And you say, let's say the share is $90. Yeah. 
And the broker says, all right, I'll give you $100 worth of the share, right? You put up $10, I'll give you 90 right? Backed by the share price. Yeah. But if that share price falls to 80, you have to give me another 10 to make up the 100. Yeah. So what happens is people are on margin, shares collapsed. Suddenly their brokers were calling them saying, where's the margin? Where's the extra 30 cash? Where's the extra 40 cash? And they couldn't get cash. Right. Yeah. So that's why the whole thing collapsed so quickly, so dramatically, right? So it's the margin side. Then of course you have the third aspect. So the crash, the margin, the third action is the banking system. Banking system, highly fragile, highly leveraged. Banks start to go bust. Once banks go bust, a recession turns into a depression because you've no monetary side. Yeah. Fourth, you have a crazy... I mean, we mentioned him before, Mellon. Yes. Man, man from Tyrone. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. His answers are from Tyrone. He was the, the Secretary of State for the Treasury. And he said... The best way to respond to this is liquidate everything. So the problem when you liquidate is that if you liquidate and sell to me, that's good for you. But if everyone liquidates at the same time, there's nobody to sell to. There's no buyers. So prices just fall even further. So the machine is stuck completely. And the old classical economics, which said, oh, don't worry, the price will fall to a certain level and at that certain level, it will bounce back. Yeah, yeah. Stop working, right? And... Then what you get is expectations kick in. So if you think prices are falling now, you think, well, I'm going to wait because prices will fall even further next year and then I'll buy that car or I'll buy that house. Mm. So you get like a spasm occurs. Now, and therefore unemployment rises. And when unemployment rises, defaults rise of the debts. Yeah, of course. And then defaults rise and then more banks go bust. Yeah. So the key thing in any crisis is to prevent a banking bust. One of the lessons of the Great Depression is do whatever it takes to stop banks going bust, even if morally you feel I can't stand bailing these people out. Yes. Right? Yeah. Even you think this is the wrong thing because they were the actual cause. Yeah. It's because of the dilemma in banks, which is that there are two assets in a bank. There are deposits, which are real money, and there are loans, which are promises. Yeah. And sometimes the promises and the reality go in different directions. And that's why you have to bail out banks. I mean, that's so the, but they didn't bail out banks in the, in the thirties. Right. right. Okay. So suddenly you get depression, depression, adds more depression, et cetera, unemployment rises. The political ramifications of this are unbelievably tragic because there's a great book that I'm just reading now called 1931, John, by a guy called Matthias Straubmann, German uh, historian. Yeah. About the rise of Hitler. And of course, The narrative is that Hitler came to power because of inflation. It's not true. He came to power in the 1930s in a deflationary environment. So the most dangerous thing is not inflation, it's deflation. So after the Great Crash, what they should have done was reflate the economy like Biden's doing now. Right. Right. Should have borrowed, 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 borrowed. The only person who was saying that was Keynes, John Maynard Keynes. Yep. The man who had that great expression. It's far more difficult to escape from a bad idea and invent a good idea. And he's right, right? Yeah. And so the world was trapped with bad ideas. And Keynes came in and said, no, no, no. What you got to do here is you got to reflate the way, spend your way out of it. And the only person who listened to him was Roosevelt in America. Right. And Roosevelt came into America and said, okay, hold on. First thing we do, that gold standard thing, forget it, right? We're not part of the gold standard. The dollar can float. 
Yeah. When the dollar can float, they can do whatever they want. It was want. Like, like a millstone around the neck. It was exactly as, as Keynes called it, uh, a barbarous relic. <laughs> Not a <laughs> nice. great expression, a barbarous relic. Um, but when you get the, the Great Depression, Hitler comes to power and the world changes from there. And the Americans got out of it, I would say by Keynesian policies, other people would say the Americans only really got, got out of it when they remilitarized after Pearl Harbor. Okay, right. That yeah. it was actually the Second World War yeah. led to the expansion of the American economy, which subsequently led to the American victory. Yeah. But that's just, that's Shin Skelela, as they'd say, Oskoelaga. Right. That's another day. Another story. Right. Okay, so that's that's the history part. Yeah. That's what's happened in the past. So what's happening now? Why don't we call John to answer that question, talk to Chris Beauchamp, who's the chief market analyst at IG, the finance company. Great. Chris, how are you, man? Are you well? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm in, in flying form. Now, Chris, John and I there were just talking about the history of the Great Depression, how it came about, the sort of mistakes, policy mistakes that were made, etc. Looking at right now, where do you think the world is at? Are there lessons that we should be still aware of from the Great Depression? How do you think, let's say, Biden is behaving against that background? Oh, I think it, it, it's something that always haunts policymakers, and it's something that we always have to bear in mind. I think it's an interesting point as we emerge sort of from the immediate COVID crisis, if you like, and into the recovery phase. I think the, the spectre of what governments didn't do in the Great Depression, what central banks didn't do as well, what we're talking about governments, really hangs over policymakers, all of who is like Bankrose ghosts. They know how this went 80, 90 years ago now and how bad it was. And I think that that's why you had central banks react so quickly a year ago and why you've got, particularly in the US now, thankfully, uh, a government that's so committed to a stimulus package that's designed to get the economy through this huge rough patch. I think rough patch understates it. But you've already seen this in the jobs numbers come through this just this last few days, 916,000 jobs created, which is a whacking great number because the economy is recovering, but it just needs that extra kickstart. And the stimulus package already, the 1.9 trillion, has been the first step. And this now 2 trillion and hopefully more to come package is the Thing that really provides a sense of we know where things will go from here because the government is stepping in. And while business seems to have weathered this whole thing relatively well, or very well, in fact, I think compared to where we were a year ago, thanks mostly to the Fed's actions, I think, to, to bridge that gap and provide financing and let everyone essentially get off and get through the first year. I think we, we have a world which is much better prepared and in a much better place than it would have been without these government actions. And say, if we didn't have, for example, the Great Depression uh, to go on, if we lived in a world where governments were this thing that was constrained to be very small and very limited in what they could do. It's interesting you speak about the States because I'm looking across the Irish Sea here at the UK. And although at the moment the UK is following very expansionary policy, I keep hearing uh, murmurs from the UK of, you know, austerity, tax increases, etc. I mean, it looks as if they're still reading an old playbook. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I think that's very much fair to say. And you can see it in the discussions before the most recent budget statement of um, how will the Tories avoid the urge to scratch that itch of austerity, to go back to the 2010 and onwards playbook of cutting state spending, um, avoiding doing too much, essentially, to, to keep Britain's borrowing profile strong. And that, of course, is important. But I think what the markets want to see at the moment is what you've had in the US, which is a big fiscal program. Now, I think if you had to, you enacted something like £100 billion worth of stimulus in the UK, that would really help the economy. 
we haven't got that. I think the, the problem is we look to the UK and the European response is that you haven't got this stimulus program. Okay, the Europeans have announced a recovery fund, but as usual with Europe, it is you have to debate how to fund it and where it's going to be used. If we go back to the UK, of course, um, we are missing this big stimulus. And if you look at the budget, it was hailed as this great um, government move to get the economy moving again. But actually, if you tot it all up and net all off um, everything that, go, that goes into it, there probably isn't that much, really. I think you've got a Conservative Party that's very much committed to reigning in state spending as and when appropriate. Now, arguably, we're out of, if you compare COVID to, say, the Second World War, it is a war in a sense, it's a war against the virus. Maybe we're out of the early crisis phase of 40 to 42, but now we've got three more years of getting the economy back to where it needs to be. And I think they're going to have to find a way of um, stimulating the economy that goes just beyond the occasional um, treat thrown to key sectors of the economy. Yeah, no, because it's funny, if you look back at history uh, and the role of the gold standard, I mean, Keynes once said, that's, I think it's a great expression, uh, he said, you know, it's far, far more difficult to escape from bad ideas than it is to accept new ideas, right? And uh, Britain, uh, and there was, a, there, was a, there was a great ding-dong between Churchill and Keynes over the gold standard in the 1920s, because Keynes was saying to Churchill, listen, man, this is not the way to go. But Churchill was obsessed by old ideas, which he subsequently uh, reneged on. And I fear that the UK, the Conservative Party, the sort of the echo of the kind of major right conservatives are still very, very much there. And again, it's the George Osborne conservatives at a time when in actual fact, the leader of the Conservative Party is a totally different creature. And I could see him being flamboyantly dexterous when it comes to fiscal policy and monetary policy, if he had the tools at his disposal. What about the European Union? Because again, I want to hear it from the market's perspective. The European Union, well, let's say the Eurozone. Philip Lane, Chief economist of the ECB clearly gets it. He understands the power of the ECB. He understands the power of the tools at his disposal. But the various fractured countries, yes, we came up with a 750 billion EU recovery plan, but nobody's really seen much of that yet. And the second thing is, of course, of course, budget deficits have blown out all over the EU. But what's your sense of where that's going to play in the next couple of years? Well, you'd hope it really does see the recovery fund get into action. The problem with the EU is it has this powerful central bank, but there's no equally powerful fiscal policy or or units, if you like. And the problem is the, the closest thing they have got is Germany, and they are very much allergic to spending money. There should be a commitment. Of course, as you rightly point out, the, the northern states are far better positioned debt-wise than the southern states and France, and that hampers expansive fiscal policy in a big way. I think the market's view is that they'd rather you spent it now and got the recovery going than scrimped and saved, and this applies to the UK as well, than scrimped and saved to to sort of ensure a stronger fiscal position and try and penny pinch, really, because you spent billions. I mean, the UK has spent billions, and we're saying, well, we'll save a million here and a million there. It's, it's, it's yeah, not dropping it makes, it makes no difference. The markets would rather the EU and the UK said, look, we'll spend all this money and we'll, we'll you could do it in COVID bonds, 100-year bonds, again, like we financed two world wars. But in order to provide the funds for the economy, you do it through the US and swing infrastructure and a whole range of ways that will bridge that gap before the economy is back to where it was. And who knows, the Eurozone economy was struggling before COVID. Um, again, because the ECB kept saying to governments every ECB meeting was, okay, we've done our bit, now you need to step up. Uh, we've reached the limit. Yeah, you need to, you need to do the fiscal side. I mean, it's, it's Jay Powell always says, the Fed can lend, it cannot spend. So it's say, here's the yeah. money, but you guys go and spend it. Let's end our conversation, Chris, going back to the States and back to the markets. So we know the Americans 
are looking at the Great Depression saying, that ain't going to happen again. We're not going to let that happen again. However, there is a residual fear that markets are overvalued on various long-term valuations, equities and bonds. There is also the clear understanding that part of the Great Depression story was the collapse in markets in the Great Crash of 29. Not the whole story, but part of it. Where's your sense of market reaction to this new super Fed, super Treasury policy of let's spend and let's change the rule book? What's your sense of where markets are? They narrow? Have people figured it out? Is there, a, is there a sort of a, like, is there a sort of a, I would say, a landing zone where market participants say, okay, I know where we're going and I know what that means? I think we're getting there. I think we've had this sort of shakeout in, in many ways. It hasn't been dramatic in terms of the indices, particularly so far this year, but it has been in many individual names. And this is why you've had this great rotation from growth stocks like Amazon, Apple, and Tesla, and a lot of them have suffered heavily, and they've gone to other sectors. So small caps, value stocks, as you might call them, stocks that are cheaper, things that are benefiting from what you hope is going to be that cyclical recovery engendered by government spending. If you have an economy that starts to reach escape velocity, then that is going to provide a lot of interest for other parts of the market that hitherto have been have, have suffered. So things like miners and oil companies and consumer spending, and also banks, of course, the rise in yields has been great. So that's why you, for them, that's why you've seen the shift away from the, the reliable tech stocks in the past year, which have done fantastically well. And the market's now saying to itself, okay, if things are going back to something like normality, maybe want to be less long tech and more long things that will benefit from the recovering yeah, like economy real where things. they're earning. Real things, exactly. like, like the shops yeah, the, and banks and all yeah. these sort of, you know, old, the old physical old economy, stuff. I think. Yeah, that, that sort of stuff. And this is if it's a normal cyclical recovery from uh, an, an avoided Great Depression, an avoided major recession, then these are the kind of things you want to be long on. I don't think you want to abandon tech entirely. I think you'll just see them reduce allocation to it because this is a popular trade. And clearly Amazon and Apple and Google, they're going to keep throwing off cash. They're not going away. But the, the questions are, is the risk to reward better in other sectors? And that's where we're looking at this point in time. I think the market is doing that at the moment and it's slowly getting to that point where it says actually these sectors look better because the economy is recovering. We want to be more in this than we were because of the outlook. And just finally, Chris, remember like all the last, you know, when, when QE was was happening, people were trying to come to terms, okay, is this normal? Is Okay, this is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then it was like, okay, shit, this is the new normal. This is right. Is there is there a sense now in your, on a big global macro view that financial markets, bond markets in particular, FX markets as well, are prepared now to digest that we're in a new world and all, or not all, many shibboleths and former rules of thumb have to be put aside and we're in, we're in a new dispensation? I think we're getting there. Um, I think the current, the recent sort of jitters over inflation um, is something that's yeah, really that's what I'm talking about. Shows you that the idea of the 70s are still knocking around a bit and people look back to that last great period of inflation or whatever happens again. The, the situation is very different this time around. Uh, oil is less of a factor. You've got reductions in work bargaining power that keeps wages low. The whole thing overall is quite a different situation in the 70s. But the, the, the fear, the reflexive fear that that will come back again is still very much there. And that's that's how it's going to be interesting watching the markets battle the Fed's view of Fed says we're going to think inflation is transitory and it will be fine. And the market says, no, 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 you, we're going to have, you're going to have to raise rates sooner than expected. This is going to be the major problem and how they adjust to a world where, okay, things improve, but the Fed doesn't react too quickly because it wants to let the economy 
the recovery. Yeah, it wants to be able to breathe really a bit and then grow grow some muscles before it, it it starts to flex again. Yes, very much so. Yeah, great stuff, Chris. Listen, that was absolutely great. Great stuff. Thanks a lot. So much, David. Thank you so much. So Chris was great there on where we're at now. Yeah. So now let's look to the future. What, yeah. what have we learned from all of that? What have you learned from the Great Depression? What's happening yeah. now? And where is that going to take us into the future? What we've learned, John, is that economics is theology, not science, right? Right. <laughs> that, well, it's a terrible thing to finally dawn on the economists, right? That it's actually theology. It's like a religion. Yeah. And where you stand is based on your own set of prejudices and whatever creed you're reading, whatever Bible, Torah, yeah. you know, whatever you're reading, the Quran, right? <laughs> uh, it is, you know, and, and that's why the fights amongst economists are legendary and vicious <laughs> because it's a sectarian scrap, yeah. right? And it can't be proved. It's not about ideology or it's not about science or mathematics or anything. It's about... You just uh, have to wait yeah, and see how yeah, things play yeah, out. Exactly. And yeah. I'll be proved right in the long run, right? Yeah. What Biden is doing is doing what Roosevelt did. He's saying, look, hold on a second. This thing isn't working. He's also saying COVID is like a war and we're going to react to it like a war. That basically we're going to have a war economy mm. to push us back onto a growth path that is essential for the United States to grow from. What has been the case for many years is that where the Americans go, usually the rest of the world goes afterwards. And that's why I was asking Chris about Britain, because Britain seems to be dragging its feet quite a bit, and mm. the European Union. The European Union, after all, finds it so difficult to come together. I, I think ultimately where this is going to end, John, is with deeper fiscal union in Europe. I think it'll dawn on European politicians national politicians, that if they really want to make Europe work, they will have to federalise. Right. But the point is national politicians don't want Europe to work like that because they're national politicians. Like That would be like Turkey's voting for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like If you've got your arse in the back of a black merc and you're from Kilty Ma, right? And you're, and you're loving it, you're going back to Mass. Do you remember your man P. Flynn apparently used to go to Mass yes. in Mayo, like the Don, right? Yeah, yeah. Man. So national politicians don't want to give that stuff up. Yeah. So I think Europe will splutter a wee bit. That's, I think, probably the most logical thing. But the biggest lesson is that, as Keynes says, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Because he was asked, somebody said, Mr. Keynes, you've changed your mind. Yeah. And he said, well, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? There's also that great American quote, which is the consistency is the hobgoblin of the dull and boring mind. That's very good. And that's, I think, where the lessons from the Great Depression are. It's like in football, you can only play the team that turns out in front of you. And when that team changes, you change your tactics. And when the economy changes, you change your tactics. Okay, so what are the other big factors around the world? Like, yeah. if you just broaden it out a bit. Well, I think there's two big factors. We'll probably focus on one. The one big factor, remember we were talking about the 1920s, was the technological change. Yeah. I think one of the huge technological changes that will come about as a result of COVID will be largely stemming from that Moderna vaccine. Yeah. The one that actually changes our proteins. If you can instruct, think about it, if we can instruct our proteins to change, to mutate in our own bodies. Yeah. And that was accelerated. Maybe that was on the back burner for a long time. I don't know the science of it, but- it was accelerated because of COVID. I think the changes to human health, human welfare, to our health systems are really phenomenal. Mm. You know, because what, what we've been trying to do in science for so long is to identify 
What causes aging? What causes cancer? Why do the proteins mutate? What's signaling? What's telling them to change? Yeah, yeah. And at the basis of the Moderna vaccine, the one that was constructed in Germany, is the solution to that. So I think that's very exciting. So I think we're going to get really amazing changes in technology, which we will be, and I, I also think the impact of the internet is only at the very beginning. Do you think? Yeah, and it's disruption of economics. And, you know, we talked to John Collison earlier on, what those guys, I mean, what they're doing, it's quite interesting that IG were talking about banks. And John Collison is basically saying, man, banks ain't going to exist. Or they're not going to exist in this form yeah. because, you know what's going to happen? Engineers are going to turn into bankers. It's going to be algorithmic banking, right? That's the way it's going to go. Right. Okay. And all the back end that banks used to do, which is clear trades, that's all going to be done by companies like Stripe. So we're at the beginning of the massive disruption yeah. of everything. And would that include cryptocurrencies as well? Cryptocurrencies are another hugely disruptive force. You know, currencies are always only a technological solution to a problem. I've always looked at currencies and money is technology. Yeah. And cryptocurrencies will come and go. Some of them will work. Some people who say Bitcoin is going to be the one that works. Other people say, in actual fact, Bitcoin will be the least impressive iteration of what cryptocurrencies will turn into because its its own underlying algorithms are slow. So I'm not sure. But all that is changing the world. Blockchain, all that sort of technology is changing the financial world. But think about like what we're doing, podcasting. You know, yeah. this is going to destroy radio. Like this is because people have decided that they want an intimate, personal relationship with whatever they're listening to. Yeah. So they just don't want to go and say, you know, BBC or RT or something, here's your list of programs from 6am to 6pm. I don't want that. Yeah. I want my own stuff. So what we're talking about is incredible disruption, and that's going to be very exciting for the economy. But geostrategically and geopolitically, I think what was clear is that we've avoided Asia. Asia is the coming power, right? China, India, Southeast Asia in general. Yeah. Uh, that is going to be the place that makes the world tick. And the question then is, what's the story with America and China? You know, there's a lot of historians who will say that great powers are condemned to fight at the end. So the waning power and the accelerating power are condemned to fight. This goes back to the Greeks and the Persians. Yeah, yeah. Are they, for example, a great example was the, the Brits and the Germans at the end of the 19th century, where Britain was top dog for about 100 years. And then it seemed like out of nowhere, Germany emerges and trounces them on every metric. And again, historians would say they were condemned to fight over status and power and all that carry on, which brings us to China and America. And the big imponderable is, does China remain a unbelievably powerful economy, but a kind of a political, I wouldn't say dwarf, it's the, you know, it was uh, Willy Brandt who was the German chancellor in the 70s. Yeah. I knelt in the Warsaw ghetto and looked for forgiveness in 1970s. It was a big moment in German history. Right. He described West Germany as an economic giant but a political pygmy. And he said, that's the, you know, that's, that's the game we're going to play. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think there was a hope that China would do something like that, but it doesn't look like that anymore. So I would say we touched on Pearl Harbor in terms of the American response. I would say what we will see as Europeans is the lessons from the Great Depression was the emergence in totality of the United States as the overwhelming post-Second World War power, right? And these things shift. And I think the lesson of this for us in the early part of the 21st century is the relentless emergence of China as not the unassailable 
but clearly the overwhelming power in the world. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon. Email in. I will answer your question. But more importantly, it's ad-free. Just you and me and your man across the way. Hey. Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And let's figure out the world together. Thank you.